Grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. So it occurred to me that if you want something done, it's really hard to beat a mother's request. So, or a grandmother's request. So I had a grandmother who... She'd say, Christopher, can you do X, Y, Z for me? And usually I would do it, but there were occasions, there were times when I would say, not right now, Grandma, and she would say, aww. <laughs> how, do you say, how do you say no to that? Now, I know mothers out there, okay, there are times, do, do kids do everything that you ask them to do? And in the way that you want them to do it? And in the timetable you want them to do it? No. I know that. Now imagine if your child were Jesus. Just just think of that for a minute. Just seriously consider that. What if your child were Jesus? You know, the one who does all things well. I mean, let's, let's just be honest here. The one who does all things perfect. what a dutiful son our Lord must have been. Think about that. What a dutiful son our Lord must have been. And moms, while we're at it, and dads, while we're at it, um, think about this. You know, he has to fulfill the fourth commandment perfectly. Right? As our substitute, to fulfill the law for us so that he might be uh, that perfect sacrifice in our stead. So, wow, what a dutiful son he must have been. But it must give us pause when we look at this miracle in the, at Cana in Galilee, right? We have an interesting request, mother's request this morning. Mary, Jesus, the disciples of Jesus are at this wedding. And let's talk about this wedding a little bit. So weddings, as you guys know, today even, are, they're a big deal. They're a big deal in the time of Jesus. And you, it's big, right? You invite your neighbors, you invite your family, you invite your friends, you invite all these people to the wedding. And uh, you probably know that weddings could last up to a week and often did, right? We think we got it tough now, right? After one day, we're like, oh, man. Imagine having a wedding for a week. And not only that, but, and it's probably a little bit true today too, but even more so back then, where if you have a wedding, you're expected to sort of have a big celebration and things like this in relationship to your social standing, right? It's kind of a big deal. And at this particular wedding, social faux pas, they run out of wine. Mary takes it upon herself, right? Jesus' mother, Mary takes it upon herself to go and bring this to the attention of Jesus, right? They have no more wine. That's all she says. They have no more wine. Now, I don't know what you read into that because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what Mary's Real reasons are behind this whole thing. Scripture doesn't tell us. So I don't think that we should try to venture a guess. 
But what is interesting is that when she says they have no more wine, this dutiful son, the one who kept the fourth commandment, all commandments perfectly, doesn't respond with, yes, mother dear. Right? I'll get right on it. Doesn't say that at all. What does he say? Well, let's break that down. What does he say? Woman, what's that? And some translations will say, what's that to you and me? What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So let's, let's break that down a little bit, right? My hour has not yet come. So first of all, he, he calls his mother woman. You might say, wow, in our modern context, that sounds really bad, doesn't it? It's really a common term, and it's a, it's a term of respect back then, right? But it's still an unusual choice uh, for you to address your mother, woman. And I think we can kind of decipher, what does it have to do with you and with me, right? How is it our problem? I mean, that's probably a, a little bit crass. But the interesting thing that we have to sort of perk our ears up at is the next thing that comes. And that is, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What does that mean? What does that mean? Jesus' hour. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't think Mary had any sort of idea of the potential of what might happen with a lot of attention on Christ, right? And doing something of this magnitude. Christ's public ministry has implications. Okay? So there is this war going on between light and darkness. There is this war. It is a war. Alright? And Jesus is declaring war against the powers of darkness, right? Let's use a John motif. The powers of darkness. He's declaring war. And so he does all kinds of things. He preaches, he teaches, he does signs. Right? Miraculous things that manifest his glory. That points to his identity as the Savior of the world, as God in the flesh. Right? And he does wonderful things. But, as he does these things, it attracts the wrong kind of attention as well. Right? Satan kind of ups his attacks too. You really see this emphasized in Mark. We're not talking about Mark, but there's still this, this fight between light and darkness, right? The wrong kind of attention, public scrutiny, staunch opposition, planning and plotting to destroy Jesus, right? To bring about his death. I'm not sure how we rectify this is interesting to me. I just you can't wrap your head around it as a human, uh, a fallen, sinful, broken human. But uh, we know that it's the Father's will that Jesus lay down His life, right, to suffer and die for us, to restore creation to Himself, to to win for us forgiveness of sins, life, salvation, all those things. And Jesus' hour is when He would be lifted up from the earth, right? Not the ascension, lifted up on the cross. And Jesus says, because it's at that point that I draw all people to myself. Here's the thing. What men meant for ill, God meant 
for good. And there's an unexpected result. That the Son would be glorified. And would glorify the Father by this salvation offered freely and fully in Him. Yes, Christ's hour would be for God's glory. Because it's for our salvation, what God has done for us, right? Mary had no idea that a simple request, an innocent comment, a request for something amazing, could potentially open the door to immediate opposition, defiance, rebellion, right? All these things. Hatred, a sign spoken against, as Simeon told her when they brought Jesus into the temple. Probably had no idea. You know, Mary only appears twice in the Gospel of John. Only twice. Here at the wedding at Cana in Galilee with this request. Where do you think the other time is? It's the cross. Yeah. It's the cross. Mary didn't know probably at that moment when Jesus said, my hour has not yet come fully, what that would look like, but she would. she would see him come to his hour. How tough that must have been for a mother, yeah? I don't know if any of you have seen Mel Gibson's 2004 film, The Passion of the Christ, right? And before you do, you have to know it's, it's very violent. Anyway, there's a scene in there where you have a flashback where Mary, uh, Jesus trips and scrapes his knee, and Mary comes like any mother would. She scoops him up, right? She scoops him up. And uh, she says, it's okay, I'm here. Her son is being paraded out to Golgotha with the cross, right? And he stumbles. Now, this is extra biblical. But I think it does communicate a biblical truth. In other words, it's not recorded in the Bible. So you just have to know that up front. Um, he stumbles and, and, and her motherly instinct kicks in. <laughs> she, she comes up, right? And she's, I don't know how she's going to scoop him up, but she's, she's down there with him. And she says, I'm here. And Jesus turns the tables turns the tables and says, Behold, Mother, I am making all things new. Right? This, this quotation that is from the Bible, it's taken out of context, but Mary thinks, I'm here for you. Jesus is like, no. I'm here for you. I am suffering. I am bleeding. I am dying. For you. And not just for Mary, but for you and for me. Mary's not going to deliver her son from suffering, from scorn, from death. He will deliver her from those things. And he will deliver us. He will deliver you. He will deliver me as well. The thing is, is we hear this time and again, and I know it's like, ah, I know this already. And Martin Luther always says, the fallen human heart doesn't want another sermon about justification. It wants, you know, stories and 
anything else. Spectacle, right? Spectacle. Entertainment. Pizzazz, you know. The cross is, a lot of times, just not enough for our old Adam. It's boring. It's dull. And when life gets tough, when life gets hard, when life gets difficult, uh, what do we do? Uh, give me a sign. Give me a miracle. Give me something that I can hold on to. Something spectacular. Anything else. Don't talk about the cross again. Give me something else so that I will know that everything will be okay. Why does Jesus turn water into wine? Maybe our text doesn't really tell us that either, but it tells us the result, and that result is important, and that is that his disciples believe in him. Okay? Why does Jesus turn water into wine? Not to bring the party, not to spare people from potential embarrassment, not even <laughs> to appease his mother, although, spoiler alert, you know, he does the miracle. So that his disciples might believe in him. At some level, Mary is already there. I don't know if you noticed this, but. After she says they have no more wine and she makes a request and Jesus responds in the way that he does, a little bit unexpectedly, unconventionally, even though he responds that way, uh, what's her response? She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to. I gave you a dangling participle, sorry. That's bad for an English guy like me. Uh, whatever he says to you, do it. There we go. What good and sound advice for you and for me? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Trust in him. Trust in him. Jesus turns water into wine with the result that you would believe in him. It's the same reason that John says he writes this gospel, right? The disciple whom Jesus loves uh, writes down specific signs, miracles. But what's interesting is, he highlights it, but he doesn't overemphasize it. It's by far the fewest miracles in any of the Gospels you find in John. By far. And that's not to say that John didn't witness much, 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 much more. In fact, his Gospel ends in this way. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. We know that his testimony is true. Now, here's what he says. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did were every one of them written down. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So why not list more? Why not give us the whole smear? A comprehensive list. Because John doesn't want us to have faith in signs. He wants us to have faith in Jesus. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. This is uh, from John 20. But these are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life. There it is. You might have life in his name. There is a paradox concerning science faith. There is a paradox. Signs in and of themselves, right? Again, it's God waging war on darkness. It's involving the Father's holy will. It's benefiting those uh, to whom they are given, to those who are, uh, to those who witness it, to those who receive uh, those things that come from it. Jesus has in mind the spiritual and physical well-being of the recipient, right? And if faith comes forth and bursts forth in Christ as a result of signs, well and good. In John 10.32, Jesus says, I have shown you great many miracles. It's not the word signs, it's arga. It works, miracles. From the Father. In 10.38, he says something similar. Even though you do not believe in me, believe the arga, ar, ar, argois, right? argus, works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And then uh, in 14.11, our Lord addresses it again. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles Argot works themselves. But here's where things get dangerous, as I kind of already alluded to. A faith based purely on signs, give us another sign, give us another sign, give us another sign, is dangerous because it finds it's trusting in signs. It's trusting in the signs of Christ rather than in Christ. And solely in Christ. In John chapter 4, there's this sort of return. Jesus returns to Cana in Galilee, and, and John lets us know that's where he turned the water into wine. All right. And at Capernaum, there's an official there whose son is ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. But Jesus said this to him. Unless you, and he's not just talking to the Father, he's talking to the crowd. You all. Unless you all, unless you people, see miracles, you, you don't believe. It's not good. Uh, spoiler alert, Jesus does the sign anyway. Alright, does the miracle. What about you? Are you saying, give me something else besides that cross? So tired of hearing about it. Give me something new. Give me some pizzazz. Give me some glory. Give me my own little sign, my own little miracle. For the love of God, please. But what if it doesn't come? What if God doesn't bring you that sign in the time, place, or way that you want? Then what? I'm not trying to say signs are unimportant. They manifest Christ's glory. Yes, they serve to show us, to be an epiphany, to show us who Jesus is. But we need to look at the larger picture, all that Jesus said, all that Jesus did, all that was recorded, so that, with the result that, we might believe in Him. That's the important part for Jesus, for God, that you might believe in Him. Even when, okay, and this is the really important part, even when 
The signs or miracles or pizzazz aren't right there in front of your face. Jesus does well when he talks to Mary and this whole miracle thing. And what does he point us to? His hour. His hour. The cross and the empty tomb. That's where he points us. That's where he points Mary. That's where he points you. The cross and the empty tomb. Because without the cross and the empty tomb, we are still dead in our sins. And those other signs that are so wonderful... And they are wonderful. They become meaningless. Meaningless. We're dead in our sins. Jesus would direct our eyes to the most lowly of places, to the most glorious of places. Where Jesus does the most glorious thing. Freeing us from the bondage of sin and death. Signs are truly great. But they point to someone greater. They direct our eyes to our Lord's suffering and death and resurrection. So that whoever believes in the Son may have everlasting life in Him. John says that too. The lesson for... The wedding at the Cana of Galilee is simple. They direct us, Christ's disciples. Don't have faith in signs. Have faith in Jesus. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in our Lord. Amen.